biblical basis for the Trinity. Well, let me read you something. The Bible does not teach the Trinity doctrine. Rather, it says that there is only one true and eternal God. Jehovah, our God, is one Jehovah. He is the creator, eternal, almighty, without equal. Jesus is not almighty God. Jesus lived on earth as a perfect man. And he died for imperfect mankind. God kindly accepted the life of Jesus as a ransom. And thus through him is the salvation of the faithful. This is God's will. So reads a tract from the Jehovah's Witness entitled, Who are the Jehovah's Witnesses? So it's obvious if you were to go to a Jehovah's Witness and ask the question, is the Trinity doctrine biblical? You'd get a resounding answer, no. Well, a similar sentiment was expressed by Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States. He said, when we shall have done away with the incomprehensible jargon of the Trinitarian arithmetic, that three are one and one are three, when we shall have knocked down the artificial scaffolding, reared to mass from view the very simple structure of Jesus, when in short we have unlearned everything which has been taught since his day, and got back to the pure and simple doctrines he taught, we shall then be truly and worthily his disciples. So what do you do with that? Well, let me say that there is a sense in which that statement from the Jehovah's Witnesses is actually correct. Strictly speaking, the Bible does not teach the Trinity doctrine in such a way that you can turn to a passage which is the equivalent to that statement of faith from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, for example. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So we might read something along these lines. The Lord your God is one God, who in his oneness exists as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You don't find a verse like that. That kind of formulation came later in the early church in the form of certain creeds like the Nicene Creed, which we're going to be looking at next week. No, it would be more accurate to say that the Bible reflects and expresses the Trinity doctrine. And it does so in a variety of surprising and different ways, as we shall see in a moment. Now, of course, this means that Thomas Jefferson is monumentally wrong. Both Jesus and his disciples spoke and wrote in such a way that their teaching requires the doctrine of the Trinity. Nothing less will do justice to the data of the New Testament. However, it's not simply a matter of just picking out certain proof texts although there are certain passages in the Bible which cannot be understood under any other basis other than the fact that God in three persons is one being. 
Rather, it is that the biblical revelation in general and the New Testament in particular proceeds according to the belief that God is triune. There's the yun, the unity of God, and the tri, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons, but co-equally and co-eternally Yahweh God. Now, what is so striking is that this belief permeates the whole of the New Testament. And it is assumed by the first Christians, without them feeling they've got to give arguments or reasons to back up their belief. Now, this in itself is very impressive. And it's impressive for this reason, that most of these folk were Jews. And the one thing which marked out the Jews from any other race on earth was that they were passionately monotheistic, believing in only one God. And one of the earliest Jewish creeds, which we've referred to already, the Shema, mentioned in the book of Deuteronomy 6.4. Let me read it again. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So he's not two, he's not four, he's not 26, but one. But the word used here, echad, allows for some sort of complexity or plurality within that oneness. So this same word, echad, is used of husband and wife becoming one flesh in, in, in sexual union, Genesis 2.24. It's also used to describe the gathering of, of, of the tribes of Israel together as one man in Judges chapter 20, verse 1. So an over-translation of the Shema would run along these lines. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is oneness. And similarly... The first Christians were passionately monotheistic too. They would give no quarter, for example, to the view of the Romans. That there were many gods, the Roman pantheon. And so we find the Apostle Paul writing to Christians in pagan Corinth. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols... We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and there is no God but one. Pure monotheism. But then in the next breath, Paul goes on to say, Yet, for us, there is but one God, the Father from whom all things come and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord. I remember in the Old Testament, Lord is the name of God, Yahweh. Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. So one God, and yet at least, he's the Father and the Son. And here you see Jesus is spoken of in exactly the same terms as God the Father, as the one who is the creator and the sustainer of the entire universe. Now, the Apostle Paul wasn't stupid. 
He wasn't someone who got his math wrong, as you Americans would say. He has been spoken of as one of the most intelligent and most influential men that has ever lived. Nor was he someone who was out to start a new religion. He was a Jew of Jews. He was a one God-man all the way. To death it needs be, according to Philippians chapter 3. And yet here he is, without batting an eyelid, or having any sense of awkwardness to apologize. Paul speaks of Jesus as being equally God with the Father, as if it were the most obvious thing in the world. Now the question is why? How did it happen? How how did he get to this belief, being a Jew of Jews? Well, we're going to see how in a moment. However, let me just make a few preliminary remarks. The first is this, that belief in the Trinity is a matter of revelation, not speculation. Contrary to what the Jehovah's Witnesses teach, this was not something which was dreamt up and contrived by speculative theologians in the fourth century. It is something which is part of the very fabric of the revelation we have of God's plan of redemption in the Bible. Now, certainly it was later theologians who tried to carefully put that belief together in words which would preserve and which would explain the Bible's revelation. We'll be seeing that in our next session next week. But they didn't invent it. They simply expounded it. Secondly, the whole notion of the Trinity is unique because God is unique. You you can't point to anything else in creation and say, look, the Trinity is like that. Because God as Trinity is not like anything or anyone else. As a whilst we may sometimes try to use illustrations to get over some aspect of the Trinity like uh, water can be found in three states, liquid, gas, and solid, yet all are composed of the one substance, water, God is really not like that. That illustration actually breaks down. Because if that illustration is pressed too far, then you fall into a heresy which the early church condemned called modalism. And we'll be looking at that in more detail next week. You see, the Trinity is in a class all by itself. It's what is called sui generis, which is why it is very difficult, but not impossible, for us to get our heads around it. But what is more, you know, talk of water or shamrocks, is to talk about things. But things can't love. Things can't relate. Only persons can do those things. And that is what the one God is. Three persons in this ongoing, eternal relationship of love which flows out to his creation to embrace people like you and me. Now leads on to the third point. Namely, that there is always going to be an element of mystery due to the limitations of our our imagination and due to the greatness of God. 
The crucial question to be answered is not, can we fully understand it, but has God revealed it? And if he has, then we are to believe it. Because nothing less than a right view of God, and so a right view of salvation, actually depends upon it. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, here's one theologian, the great 16th century reformer, Jean Calvin. He said, God so proclaims himself as the sole God as to offer himself to be contemplated clearly as three persons. Unless we grasp these, only the bare and empty name of God flits about in our brains to the exclusion of the true God. Let me put it this way. To worship anything or anyone other than God is idolatry, right? We must worship and serve the one true living God. Now, the Bible is quite clear about that. Well, the doctrine of the Trinity teaches us to worship God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So if we don't do that then we're not worshipping the true God, and therefore we're going to be guilty of idolatry. Do you see? We are left with, as Calvin said, this bare, empty name of God, not the reality of God. So how does the Bible reflect the truth about the Trinity? Well, I want to be Trinitarian in our approach and look at three ways in which it does so. First of all, we see the Trinity and the devotion of the first Christians, the worship of the first Christians. Now, we've already observed that the early Christians were dyed in the wool monotheists. They were one God-only people. And yet, they offer worship to God as Father, God as Son, and God as Holy Spirit. And there are little phrases which we take for granted, but which are actually packed with theological dynamite which reflects this. In the first place, we have the greetings, such as 1 Thessalonians 1.1. For the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you might be able to see how a, how a group of Christians meeting in Thessalonica might have some mystical union with God, and therefore be in God. But how can they be in a mere man? Jesus. Well, they can't if he's a mere man. But they can if he's God. So what Paul is doing here is putting the two together. God the Father and God the Son. As if to say, these two who are God are one God. And so the only God who exists, and you Christians gather together, are in him. But then we have the blessings. For example, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now again, we're so familiar with these words that the profound significance and the oddity of those words are actually lost on us. Jews knew where grace, charis, came from. came from God. 
Jews knew where love, agape, came from. It came from God. And they also knew where fellowship, koinonia, came from. It came from God. And yet there's only one God. And he's the source of all three blessings. How? Because God is Father, God is Son, God is Holy Spirit. And we also notice here how Jesus is placed before God the Father in this Trinitarian blessing. Because that underscores his equality with the Father and also with the Holy Spirit. But thirdly, there are the praises, as we find in what could be a kind of hymn in Ephesians chapter 1 and uh, 1 to 11. So here Paul traces the blessings of salvation to the Father who chose us, to Christ who redeemed us, and to the Holy Spirit who seals our final inheritance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He, that is the Father, chose us in him before the creation of the world. In Christ we have redemption through his blood, Having believed in him, you have been marked in him with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. So Paul, in this wonderful uh, hymn, in fact, in the Greek, it's just one sentence, is overflowing with praise. And it's not just some vague entity out there called God, a mere name, but a God who is known personally as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So the next big question for us is this. Where did these first Christians get their belief, sorry, get their belief and practice to worship God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Bearing mindful, they're Jews. They've been imbibed with their mother's milk that there's only one God. And to worship any other so-called gods or any other human beings is idolatrous and blasphemous. Where did it come from? Well, let me tell you where it didn't come from. It didn't come from a committee. They didn't come up with the idea. The most obvious source of their Trinitarian consciousness, if I may put it like that, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Their experience of him and his teaching. So let's take the experience of Jesus, for example, and considered just one episode which pinpoints this, namely his baptism. Now, this is what we read in in Luke's account. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven You are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. So right at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, we have all three persons of the Godhead present. Now this only makes sense if faith in Christ is also a response to the Father who speaks from heaven. And an expectation of the power of the Spirit represented symbolically as a dove. So we can only know Christ fully if we also know the Father who sent him. And if we receive the spirit of truth, 
which Jesus sent after his death, resurrection, and ascension. And so as we come to, 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 to Jesus as God the Son, then we also come to God the Father, believing. Because God the Holy Spirit has come into our hearts to give us that saving trust. Do you see? Now, as far as the teaching of Jesus is concerned, there are loads of passages you can look at, especially John 14 to 16. But we're going to just look at one this morning, right at the end of Matthew's Gospel in chapter 28, verse 19 and following. Now, this is sometimes uh, referred to as the Great Commission. You remember that the disciples received their marching orders from Jesus. And he says that followers, disciples are to be made from all nations and baptized into the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now that wording is very precise and highly significant. Jesus doesn't say baptizing them into the names of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, plural. Why? Because that would mean there are three gods. There's a God called the Father, there's a God called the Son, and there's a God called the Holy Spirit. But neither does he say, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, without the Son and the Spirit having the definite article in front, the Son, the Spirit. For that formulation would only give us one God, who then appears in different guises. Sometimes he appears as the Son, sometimes he appears as the Father, and sometimes he appears as the Holy Spirit. That's not what Jesus is saying. It's very careful. Look at it. It is in the name. And remember, the name for the Jews meant the name Yahweh, a name a pious Jew would not even utter, emphasizing there is only one God, the name. And yet, this is the one God who is the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Therefore, maintaining their distinctiveness. They share the one name, Yahweh, Lord, the Godness, if you like. And yet, they remain three distinct identities. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that is what the Trinity is. Jesus implicitly taught it. The early Christians assumed and believed it, and we're to do the same. Now, this makes it clear that the early Christians symbolized that salvation was entirely from God by people being baptized into the name of the Trinity, which brings us to the second area which reflects the Trinity doctrine, namely salvation, the gospel. It was the experience and revelation of God's rescue plan itself which demanded the belief in the Trinity. Now, let me just briefly go through three passages which underscore this. First of all, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. We're told that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So notice the one involved was not just part of God or a mere man who cooperated with God. It was God in Christ. Then we have perhaps the most famous verse in the entire Bible, John 3.16. 
God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. If salvation is entirely the work of God, then the son who is sent must be God too. Otherwise, it is God plus another. But what does the Spirit have in all of this? What role does he have in our salvation? Well, he doesn't have a role according to Hebrews chapter 9. Contrasting Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross with the Old Testament sacrificial system, uh, we read these words. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Now, what the writer is saying is that Jesus, who was both priest and victim on the altar of the cross, offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we know that the Holy Spirit is God because we read this in 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now, the Lord, again, Yahweh, is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. In other words, friends, the whole of the Godhead is actively involved in saving us. And then our salvation has this threefold source. It's also taught by the Apostle Peter. This is not just Paul stuff. This is not just Hebrew stuff. To God's chosen people, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ sprinkled with his blood. Now, don't you find it moving that God is committed to our salvation, that the whole of the Godhead is involved in it? Let's just think about it negatively. What if the Jehovah's Witnesses and Jefferson were correct? Well, If there's no Trinity, then Jesus, who died on the cross, is not God dying in our place. But a human being who dies to save us from God. Do you see the difference? And if this is so, then we are not saved by God, but saved from God. And then God is not our Savior, but but a man. Although how a mere man can be a savior, I have no idea. But that's what the Jehovah's Witnesses teach. If there is no trinity, then the work of salvation cannot be the work of God. Because for it to be entirely of God requires God to be the priest who offers himself as a sacrifice. It requires God to be the one who receives the sacrifice And it means that there must be God who applies the work of the sacrifice in the life of an individual. In other words, you need God, the Son who died on the cross to redeem us. You need God, the Father who is in heaven, who accepts the sacrifice and forgives us. And you need God, the Holy Spirit, to work within us. In short, you need the Trinity in order to be saved. 
Now, friends, this was the experience of the first Christians when they embraced the gospel. The great B.B. Uh, Warfield describes what people find when they become Christians in this way. By means of this doctrine, the Christian believer is able to think clearly and consequently of his threefold relation to the saving God. Experiencing as fatherly love sending a redeemer, as redeeming love executing redemption, and as saving love applying redemption. All manifestations in distinct methods and by distinct agencies of the one seeking and saving love of God. But thirdly, we need the Trinity if we're going to experience communion or fellowship. That's fellowship with God and with each other. Now, how is a believer brought into this personal spiritual relationship with God and so with each other into the body of Christ? The answer is the Trinity. And so Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, there are different gifts, but the same spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord, that's Jesus. There are different kinds of, of workings, but the same God, that is the Father, who works all of them in all men. So there's one God, but there are three persons within the Godhead, and each person having a different function to perform within the overall economy of our salvation. So the term gifts, charismata, tells us what God the Spirit gives. He gives love gifts. And the term service, diaconia, ministries, tells us what the Son gives them for, namely to, to, to serve other people. And the term workings or energizing or energomata tells us how God the Father brings them into the operation in our lives by his power. So these gifts to the church which come from God the Holy Spirit are meant to enable us to express the servanthood of Jesus, the Son, by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, you would not have a church if it were not for the fact that there's a trinity. Now, I hope you got the message. No trinity means no salvation. No trinity means no church. No trinity, no Christianity. But we do have the Trinity. There is one God who exists within the eternity of his own glorious being as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Oh, yes, yeah, sure, some people believe in God. But that's all it will remain. An idea. Cold, distant, cerebral. It's what uh, Calvin said, a mere name flitting around our brains like a pinball. But the Trinitarian God is alive and vibrant and, and is overflowing with energy and love and he wants to catch each one of us up into his Trinitarian life. Loved as the Father loves the Son, awash with the Spirit. That is the Christian experience. This is the way the uh, former principal of Moore College, Sydney, Broughton Knox, summarizes the essential nature of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of the Christian religion. Unless this doctrine is held firmly and truly, it is not possible to be a Christian. For the Christian is one who acknowledges Jesus as Lord, yet adheres to the religion of the Bible, which emphasizes so strongly that there is only one God.
But I think we've got to be honest and admit that uh, some churches do seem to have an unclear view of the Trinity, a small view of God, and neglect different persons of the Trinity. So a church which focuses on the Father may have an unclear view of the gospel and the need of a saviour. Because the emphasis is on the fatherhood of God, which is all very vague and fluffy and sounds nice. But a church which focuses on the Son may not have a proper value of creation and the good things which are given to us to, to manage and to enjoy. And a church which focuses on the Spirit may lack an awareness of the historical basis of our faith and therefore slide into subjectivism. You know, God is as real as I feel. But when we worship the God who is Trinity, our experience is of a totally different order. And this is the way a friend of mine, uh, Dr. Peter Adam, who was principal of uh, Ridley College in Melbourne, puts it. And I find this very exciting. Life caught up in God is more like relating to a loving community than it is like relating to a loving individual. We turn to the Father and he gives up the Son and the Spirit. We turn to the Son and he shows us the Father and he breathes the Spirit. We turn to the Spirit and he shows us the Father and the Son. That is Christian experience. Is that your experience? It should be. So then, are there any illustrations we can use to understand the Trinity? Well, I don't think so, not really. Because by definition, God is absolutely unique. But there is one illustration which, while not explaining the Trinity, does help us to be content with the limitations of our knowledge and God's revelation. It's an illustration which um, comes from C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. And in the book, he he argues that in space, we can move in three ways, left or right, backward or forward, up or down. These are the three dimensions. If we're using only one dimension, we would only be able to draw a straight line. With two dimensions, you can draw a figure, maybe a square. But with three dimensions, you can build that up into a solid body, like a a cube, like a lump of sugar. So the point is, when you advance to more real and complicated levels, the higher you go, then you don't leave the lower levels behind. They're taken up and filled out. Do you see? And so he says it's a bit like that when you think of God and the Trinity. Let me quote. The human level is, if you like, at the simple and empty level. On the human level, one person is one being, and any two persons are separate beings. Just as in two dimensions, on a piece of paper, one square is one figure, and uh, two squares, two figures. But on the divine level, it's like a third dimension. You still find the personalities, but they're combined in new ways which we, on the simple level, cannot imagine. In God's dimension, you find this wonderful being who is three persons while remaining one being, just as a cube is six squares while remaining one cube. As with any analogy or illustration, it has its limitations. Uh, The main one with this, of course, is that it's static, 
Whereas with God, we're talking about this, this wonderful being of three persons and this wonderful relationship. But he does show you this, that there is no inherent contradiction in the idea of God as Trinity any more than there's an inherent contradiction between squares and cubes. Okay? Now, <clears throat> what we're going to see next week is what the early church fathers sought to do through their creeds. To, to find ways of formulating these biblical truths within the limitations of human words and the categories available to them, which remain true to Scripture, draw the boundaries of orthodoxy, and which avoid misunderstanding. But I hope at least this lesson has given you confidence to know that Trinitarian doctrine is biblical and it is wonderfully relevant. Here's a good book to get. It's called The Good God by uh, Dr. Mike Reeves. And talking about the Trinity, he says this. The irony could not be thicker. What we assume would be a dull and peculiar irrelevance turns out to be the source of all that is good in Christianity. Neither a problem nor a technicality, the triune being of God is the vital oxygen of Christian life and joy. Well, briefly, let me give you some points for home. First of all, John, as you know, wrote his Gospels so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, that's an invitation to Trinitarian faith. Jesus is the Son of God sent by his Father. He's the Christ anointed by the Spirit. So when you start with Jesus, then you end up with God as triune. So let's encourage each other to be Trinitarian in our thinking and our praying. So let's enter into and enjoy the life of the Trinity in our prayer life by praying to the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Point one. Secondly, a weak view of the Trinity will result in a weak view of salvation. So may our praise be fueled by the thought that so great is God's love and so great is our need that all the persons of the Trinity are involved in our rescue. The Father decreed it, the Son executed it, and the Holy Spirit applies it, and God's triune love guarantees it. But did you also realize that the way God communicates to us in Scripture is Trinitarian? You see, God the Father is the speaker. He's the originator of his revelation. In the past, God the Father spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. The word, the logos, as your pastor was preaching this morning, is the content of this revelation. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, Hebrews 1, 2. The whole Old Testament prepares the way for him. The New Testament explains him. And then it's the Spirit who brings the Scripture into being. All Scripture is breathed out by God. The word for breath there is pneuma. In Hebrew, it's ruach. It, it can be translated breath or spirit. So the Word of God comes out on the breath of the Spirit of God, and lives are changed. And the lives are changed as Scripture is applied in our lives. It is useful for teaching, for rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. So keep on memorizing your scriptures. 
My time's up, so let's pray. Thank you. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in this wonderful way, that you sent your Son in the world to redeem us, that you sent your Holy Spirit in our hearts to sanctify us. And this morning we worship you, our great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.